We've known the truth about the president in the Ukraine almost from the very beginning. He said on the White House lawn to reporters that he did it. So that's settled then, right? Not so fast. This was the day the Democrats, Trump, Ukraine, quid pro quo, coup, impeachment attempt, and hoax officially died. Obviously, disagreement is the point. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. So facts are up for grabs. At least we can rely on numbers to tell the story. No, turns out the algorithms that run our lives are just opinions embedded in math. Applying for credit, applying for a job, applying to go to college, applying for a loan, all those things are now algorithmic. So it's really, really important to remember that it's not necessarily opinion that you have to share. It's all coming up after this. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is out this week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And here's EU Ambassador Gordon Sunland famously repeating... Everyone was in the loop. Was there a quid pro quo? The answer is yes. Everyone was in the loop. He spoke at the impeachment inquiry this week, over which Democrat Adam Schiff presided, serving up an evidence-based narrative, countered by Republican Devin Nunes's unfounded one. I make this assessment on facts available to all. And here's Ukraine diplomat David Holmes. The three priorities of security, economy, and justice and our support for Ukrainian democratic resistance to Russian aggression became overshadowed by a political agenda promoted by former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani and a cadre of officials operating with a direct channel to the White House. And former White House Russia expert Fiona Hill. Some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. The so-called legacy media saw testimony confirmed by many of a quid pro quo for personal gain. Or was there? Trump's defenders had nothing. Or did they? Fox News commentator Jesse Waters. The hoax is over. (laughs) I mean, you guys tried, you failed. You didn't have one witness to testify that Trump directed a quid pro quo involving military aid. Not one. Fox News host Sean Hannity. This was the day the Democrats, Trump, Ukraine, quid pro quo, coup, impeachment attempt, and hoax officially died. The odd thing about this entire affair is that we've known the truth about the president in the Ukraine almost from the very beginning. I mean, he said on the White House lawn to reporters that he did it. That's David Roberts, who covers energy and politics for Vox, who set out to answer the eternal question, how can the president's defenders on Capitol Hill and on Fox News and such like media keep denying the obvious, keep repeating narratives and timelines and outright BS that is continually, definitively debunked? An NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll published earlier this week found that two-thirds of Americans say nothing they hear in the impeachment inquiry would cause them to change their minds about whether Trump ought to be impeached. David Roberts calls this 
a pivotal moment in our epistemic crisis, meaning the crisis in how we acquire knowledge? Right. The crisis in how we come to know things, how we learn things, what we count as true, who we trust. And by the crisis, I just mean we're sort of splitting into two worlds, not just two different sets of values or priorities or sort of visions for the country, but two different fact sets. And you get people dug in to where they're saying things to pollsters like, look, I picked my side. I don't care what anyone says anymore. The Democrats have the field, they have the talent, they have the facts, they have the format, but you argue that it is very much in doubt that they could win. By any sort of objective standard, if there were a referee, the referee would have stepped in and said, this is over, you guys have established your case. But it is the lack of referees that is precisely the problem. You would have to have a referee whose word is respected by both sides of the contest. And that's what we don't have anymore. So one side's referees can say, hey, we think it's over and obvious. And the other side's referees can just say, no, we refuse to acknowledge it. And in that circumstance, there's just no way to finish the game. So you argued in a piece last weekend on Vox that this moment is defined by tribal epistemology and that it's kind of like (laughs) tribal morality. Right. So it's tribal morality, I think, is is something people are more familiar with. It's when you decide the welfare of my tribe, my group, takes precedence over principles. So, for instance, in the mid-2000s, we had a big national debate about torture. And the sort of two sides, one was saying, no, don't torture is a principle. It applies to everyone, right? Us and them. But the other side was saying, look, no, we're good people. We're on the side of right. So if we torture... It's okay, because our tribe is good, so what we do is good. And tribal epistemology is just the same thing. You put your tribal interests ahead of sort of epistemological principles of evidence and self-correction and self-criticism and peer review, all these sort of mechanisms we have for determining truth. You just put your tribe's interests ahead of those. So you end up saying, we're going to believe whatever is useful for us in the moment to believe. I was thinking about the ejection by the president of members of the tribe for betrayal and, as you might put it, epistemic transgressions. Yes. For example, we have a tape of Representative Jim Himes questioning Jennifer Williams on Tuesday. She worked for Pence. She also worked for Obama and the Bush administration before that and for the Bush-Cheney re-election campaign. Ms. Williams, on Sunday, the president personally targeted you in a tweet. It reads, tell Jennifer Williams, whoever that is, to read both transcripts of the presidential calls and see the just-released statement from Ukraine. Then she should meet with the other never-Trumpers, who I don't know and mostly never even heard of, and work out a better presidential attack. Two things are notable about that. As you say, the entire weight of her experience and previous commitments when she crossed the tribe... It was tissue paper. It meant nothing. And secondly, Trump has sort of like exacerbated all this in the sense that his behavior is so erratic and his sort of assertions are sort of changing day by day. So there's no way to even kind of pretend anymore that you're basing your defense of him on principles. He makes that impossible. So if you want to be a member of the tribe in good standing, you have to go along with all of Trump's 
veering back and forth. The fact that Mike Pence did nothing to step up and mm. defend her shows that he knows the game. Like, well, if this is the way Trump veered today, oh, well, I got, I'm following him come what may. People generally are too busy to pay close attention to politics. They pay attention to fragments and they use shorthand. And I wanted you to talk about those heuristics. I think it's perfectly normal and it's not in any way derogatory to say that most people just sort of see headlines here and there, watch the nightly news occasionally, the scroll past it on Facebook. And so they have to use heuristics, mm -hmm. shortcuts. And one heuristic that's very strong in all people, I think, is this sense that if something is valid, if it makes sense, it will command at least some agreement from both sides of a controversy, right? If you can get consensus, it's a signal of legitimacy. To take an example, if we see a Republican come forward and say something's wrong with this behavior that Trump did, we sort of granted a little bit more weight. But the problem is... What Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, figured out when Obama was elected, it's fully in my power to just give him consensus and agreement across party lines on nothing. The voting public won't understand the mechanisms of Washington well enough to know that it's me doing it. They just look up and see the president and they say, gosh, everything Obama does just causes a big fight. So if the public is just grumpy and disgusted and tuned out because the whole thing seems like a ridiculous squabble that never ends, that is absolutely to the Republicans' benefit. Our base will fight alongside us every step of the way, and the sort of unengaged middle is going to see this mess and just tune out. So when we talk about Trump's base, we're talking about under a quarter of registered voters. But what's going on in the Hill now isn't about them. They're already on board. This is about that 30 percent, according to the NPR PBS Maris poll, that says their minds are still open to information coming to light in the hearings. So what do the president's defenders need this 30 percent of us to do or not do? As I said, the way to make people dismiss something is just to make it look partisan, which is why they keep attacking the process itself. And what they want is for that 30% to look at this spectacle and say, oh, it's just more of this. I don't care. I'm going to tune out. That's what they want and need is for nothing to break through to that fuzzy middle. I also think that there's this effort to make these proceedings incomprehensible. Yes, well, it's just the starkest dichotomy, as you're watching now, of these sort of somber Democrats asking factual questions, and then Nunes coming in with these sort of random conspiracy theories that if you aren't closely following Fox in the kind of right-wing bubble, you wouldn't even recognize what he's referring to. Like, Democrats on this very committee negotiated with people who they thought were Ukrainians in order to obtain nude pictures of Trump. Believe me, you don't need to know, but my point is like there's this whole menagerie of conspiracy theories that you won't even know what they are unless you're in that bubble. And those are the people that Republicans are speaking to. So if you're just a member of the general public, they're literally not going to make sense to you. We saw a perfect example of this on Tuesday when Nunes said this. Well, Ambassador and Mr. Morrison, I have some bad news for you. 
TV ratings are way down, way down. I don't, don't hold it personally. I don't think it's you guys. But whatever drug deal the Democrats are cooking up here on the dais, American people aren't buying it. What's amazing about that to me is it shows that Trump's mentality is infusing the party now. To someone like me or you who cares what are the facts of the case, whether or not it's getting good ratings seems very obviously irrelevant. <laughs> but if there is no such thing as truth, if there's only one side's truth and the other side's truth, then the performance of the argument is the only thing. And so to Nunes, the fact that the Democrats' performance isn't drawing ratings is entirely relevant. In his mind, there is nothing but competing performances going on here. You wrote that Democrats are attempting to do something that arguably nothing since the 9-11 attacks has done. Unite Americans in a clear understanding of a threat and a clear will to action. And you wrote that at this point it seems entirely possible that it won't happen. So what then? Well, <laughs> I want to predict that it's going to fall apart because you can't operate a movement in a country based on fantasies. But on the flip side, I kind of thought that a long time ago and it sort of defied gravity sort of the other way. You know, the other way things can go is if this sort of cultish, increasingly authoritarian movement takes over the country. In Russia and Turkey and Poland, right? It's, it's a disturbingly longer and longer list. We see countries that we thought were democracies devolve into this. In the U.S., so much has happened in the last few years that we thought would never happen. I think we should really loosen up our imaginations as to what can happen when a movement that is convinced that everything it knows and loves is in danger of falling apart, a movement that's thinking like that, unconnected anymore to facts or reality, and got its hands on the power of the federal government, is the basic recipe for democracies falling apart. Hannah Arendt once said, no matter how large the tissue of falsehood that an experienced liar has to offer, it will never be large enough to cover the immensity of factuality. But I guess she never reckoned with cable news and the internet. <laughs> right. I mean, she didn't know about Facebook. I mean, <laughs> this is how these things work, right? Like, historians are going to look back and they're going to say, whoa, that was an unpleasant and ridiculous episode. And there's going to be, you know, sort of hearings. We write ourselves eventually, it seems like. But it would be nice if for once, when we're in the middle of one of these episodes, we could just stop it while it's happening. You have to think what could intervene and stop what looks like a spiral toward a really grim conclusion. And that's kind of my impulse in writing the column is to just sort of smack people upside the head and get them to start thinking like, these are not normal times. What would be sufficient to break through this frozen partisan drift toward collapse? And I really feel like the general public needs to get engaged here because there's real dangers lurking around every corner here. David, thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. David Roberts writes about energy and politics for Vox. Coming up, 
how algorithms deepen our dangerous misconceptions about how the world works. If I get to define success for myself, that's one thing. But if Facebook is defining success for me, I don't trust it. Good times. This is On the Media. So here's something I bet every On the Media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. So, obviously, politics has divided us into two camps where we don't share any facts. But numbers, they're unassailable, right? They're neutral. Well, to continue on the path we began this hour about how we fool ourselves for fun and profit, let's talk tech. Want to predict who's going to default on a loan or commit a crime or wash out at work? We've got an algorithm for that. Mostly they stink, but now they're taking over. Algorithms are replacing human advisors and brokers. Our military uses an algorithm in their Skynet program to decide who should be on the terrorism kill list. AI is being used for everything, from diagnosing illnesses to helping police predict crime hotspots. Kathy O'Neill is a mathematician, data scientist, and investigative journalist. She founded the consulting firm ORCAA, ORCA, which audits algorithms for racial, gender, economic inequality, and all-around bad science. She loves math. She used to be a Wall Street quant, but something about the financial meltdown of 2008 turned her off the use of algorithms for the purposes of prediction. Something about how no one actually checked to see if they really worked, and what happens when they don't, and even when they do. She's the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. I started with the basics. What's an algorithm? It's just a set of directions. Long division that you learn in fourth grade as an algorithm. I use the word algorithm. It's short for predictive algorithm. And that's a way of predicting the future based on the past. And we use the training data that is all around us. When you say training data... The information we've collected from the past. Like, it's memories. They are used to select to whom to give or deny a loan. That's right. Who gets hired and who doesn't. Who goes to prison and for how long. There are algorithms. Yep. And there are weapons of math destruction. What's the difference? Most algorithms are totally benign. Like, I could build an algorithm in my basement on my computer. I could be trying to predict the stock market. And nobody uses it. It doesn't matter. So I guess the shorthand version is algorithms that are important, that are destructive, and that are secret. That's the weapon of math destruction. Let's talk about some algorithms that you note in your book that are maybe one of those things, but not the others. For instance, mm -hmm. sports algorithms, predicting how teams or players may behave, fed data that actually reflect 
the behavior that they're trying to predict. Mm -hmm. They are regularly updated. And though they are widely used, you wouldn't regard them as a weapon of math destruction. Correct. So they're very important, like in the sense that there's a lot of money behind them and people really care if they're right or wrong. But if they make a mistake, that gets learned. So if we don't trade for a player and they go to another team and do really well, the algorithm learns that they made a mistake. And that's often not the case for weapons of mass destruction. But the real thing that distinguishes that is that it doesn't wreak havoc. Can you give me an example of using proxies? Mm. You can't actually use the real thing, like an athlete's behavior in the league, you have to use something that might be an indicator of something else. That's a proxy. That characterizes a lot of your WMD. Absolutely. Give me an example of that. Well, the most pernicious example of that is, in my opinion, the predictive policing or the crime risk scores, the recidivism risk scores. Police in Los Angeles are trying to predict the future. We know where crime happened yesterday, but where is it going to happen tomorrow and the next day? And they're not alone. More and more departments are using data-driven algorithms to forecast crime. So they predict locations of arrests to say that's where the crime must be, rather than acknowledging that police act differently in certain neighborhoods than they act in other neighborhoods. We don't really have crime data. If you think about it, there's lots of crimes that go on that do not lead to arrests. There's lots of pot smoking among white people that never get arrested. So there's a lot more sort of non-arrested white crime than people of color. So when we use arrests as a proxy for crime, we are really overburdening those people who are already profiled by the police. So in that case, arrests are used instead of criminal behavior. Yes, when I say something like arrests are a bad proxy for crime, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are like, but people get arrested for crimes, mm-hmm. you know? I just want to make a point that, you know, I've talked to a lot of police chiefs and a lot of judges about these kinds of algorithms. And one of the things they keep on coming back to is almost no real mental health care in this country. So mm-hmm. people get arrested very consistently for addiction problems or untreated mental health problems. That's not crime. And the police don't think it's crime. The judges don't really want to think of it as crime. And yet these scoring systems are basically suggesting since this person is much more likely to be rearrested in the future because guess what? They're still going to be addicted or they're still going to have a mental health problem or they're still going to be poor and there's all sorts of crime. They're still going to be living in a neighborhood where behavior that could go on pretty much unchallenged in a frat house is going to send you into the system. Exactly. So those very predictable things show up quite well statistically. So that's, that is how your score goes up. That's how you're, you get to that point where you're considered high risk and you're actually sentenced to prison for longer. And the judges don't like it. The judges want to be putting people into prison because they're actually a public health risk, not because mm-hmm. they're addicts. That's a proxy. That characterizes a lot of your WMD. Everybody will understand hiring algorithms. So let's just say you have a big company, Brooke. You're just like, oh, my God, I'm getting so many applications for these 10 positions. And, like, I get a 1,000 applications. How am I going to sort through them all? I would like somebody to help me. And I don't don't want it to be a person because they're too expensive. I want it to be an algorithm. Mm -hmm. And so you hire me. I'm your data scientist. And I come and build you an algorithm to sort through these applications. Well, you're going to say, Kathy, I want to hire people that will be successful at my firm. And I'll say, okay, well, what do you mean by success? This is where the proxy comes in. You'll say, well, I don't measure directly whether someone's good at their job. Because you can't know that. Because how do you know that, right? I mean, 
What does it mean for someone to do well at your company? What do you think? Okay, they stay. They stay a long time. They generate a lot of good ideas. Oh, how do you measure that, though? Let's see. They get promoted. Excellent. Okay, so we have this kind of triumvirate of data points about each employee, like how long do they stay, how many promotions, how many raises. This is exactly the way Mm -hmm. that people measure success at companies. And this is exactly the kind of algorithm that gets built. So I'm training your data on 20 years of your past practice on hiring people. Boom. Implicit bias that we know exists in who gets promoted, who gets hired, who gets raises, who stays for a long time, who feels welcome enough to stay for a long time, gets baked into the algorithm that I just wrote. And you observe in the book that almost all of these algorithms predict behavior not on what you do or what you've done, because that's so hard to measure, but who you are. And I'll just add one last point to emphasize how invisible this might look from the perspective of the employer. Certain kinds of mistakes are much more obvious when you do it this way, namely false positives, which is to say, I've hired someone, they didn't work out. That is easy to spot because what a pain. What you don't see are the people that you could have hired that would have worked out but were filtered out. And that's where we see the sort of narrowing bottleneck of who is deemed future successful. Another thing we don't really understand how it works, but we have to worry about its implications, is facial recognition technology. Yes. What's the problem there? Well, there's a bunch of different levels of problems. One of them is that it sometimes just doesn't work. So my friend Joy Willemweeny at MIT Media Lab was the first to come out with an audit. She's done a few audits now, Amazon most recently, where she found that at a technical level, they weren't working very well. All companies perform better on males than females. And all companies also perform better on lighter subjects than on darker subjects. We saw that all companies performed worst on darker females. In fact, as we tested women with darker and darker skin, the chances of being correctly gendered came close to a coin toss. So why? Why does facial recognition work better on white men than black women? It doesn't have to. It just happens to because of the training data. Literally, the corpus of pictures that were used to train the algorithm was much more white and much more male. I think Joy calls them the pale male data problem. And believe it or not, they weren't thinking carefully enough before deploying it to the world to say, hey, does this work as well on black faces as white faces? Why don't these companies get ahead of this a little bit and test this and sort of have evidence in advance that this is not going to be unfair? Who determines if the algorithms are working and how? That's kind of the craziest part, and I'm so glad you asked. Nobody. There is no standard. A large company says, oh, we don't want to build these algorithms. We want to rent them, essentially. We license them from some data vendor. And the data vendor says, oh, you can trust this, but we're not going to explain it at all. It's a black box. Proprietary. That's part of the licensing agreement. You don't get to know how this works. But you can use it to hire people. You can use it if you're a police department to find people. You can use it if you're a department of education to fire your teachers, blah, blah, blah. There is no particular standard. Which brings us to the issue of how do you determine when an algorithm is successful? What is your definition of success? I was really moved by your discussion of clopenings. Mm. Yeah, this is a great example of where the definition of success for the people using the algorithm is the opposite of the definition of success for the people who are 
targeted by the algorithm. So clopenings is the concept where you are basically a minimum wage worker, probably working, you know, in a large store and you close on one evening and then you open the store the next morning. And you probably don't have enough time to even go home and see your kids, right? Barely enough time to sleep. And the crazy thing is that these scheduling algorithms will, for one week, make you clopen three days in a row, and then the next week you don't have any work at all. I looked into the research that was developing these algorithms. One of them made me cry. I mean, it was so brutal. It was like, you have the option, if you use this algorithm, to toggle the switch to make sure that none of your employees get enough hours a week to qualify for benefits. You can just turn this little switch on and like all of your employees will be wage slaves forever. They will not be able to go to night school because their hours change every day. They will not be able to put their kids in daycare regularly. It is such a small benefit for the employer if you compare it to the wrecking of the life of the employee. It's maddening, but it's not actually technically illegal. So the algorithm exploits it. You pose the question, should we as a society be willing to sacrifice a little efficiency in the interest of fairness? And you talk about Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Starbucks wants to have a good image. Its scheduling algorithm was exposed. Yeah. It said that it was going to improve it. No more clopenings, no more uh, employing people short of triggering some benefits. Right. But the trouble was that the incentives to managers to be efficient were so irresistible that they never actually made any changes. Yeah. I mean, it's a philosophical question. It's basically you're saying, do we have any answer to capitalism? <laughs> you know, all these algorithms that they're using in these corporate settings are about profitability, not about happiness. So if we wanted to address that, we would actually have to change the incentive structure of corporations. It's a big ask. How would you assess the way that we, the general public, view algorithms? I want us to learn to be skeptical. I want us to say, I don't need a math PhD to ask you why I'm getting fired. The power that we give to the algorithms is the thing we have the most control over. Do we? Let me give you another example. The U.S. News & World Report college ranking model. Mm. Who gives that power? Us. You describe the impact of that ranking. Colleges turn themselves into pretzels. Students spend tons of money in order to fit the parameters that colleges have adapted to because of the rankings in U.S. News and World Report, a, a pernicious feedback loop, you yes. call it. They're bogus and they're gameable. A college knows that if they look exclusive, then they look better for the ranking. So they just get a bunch of kids they know will never make it to apply. And yet, of all the stupid things that the U.S. News and World Report pays attention to, it doesn't pay attention to the cost. It's not one of the criteria. Exactly. When college admissions officers are crazily gaming the algorithm, which is what their job seems to be nowadays, they don't care if the tuition goes up. Why do we keep giving these questionable, stupid algorithms so much power? If people listening to this interview only take one thing away, this is what I'd want them to take away. You say that an algorithm is an opinion embedded in math. Right. I mean, there's so many choices that go into every algorithm. And the most important one being, what do we mean by success? 
if I get to define success for myself, that's one thing. But if Facebook is defining success for me, I don't trust it. As algorithms proliferate, which they are, applying for credit, applying for a job, applying to go to college, applying for a loan, applying for housing, all those things are now algorithmic. So they all define success for them, not for us. That's their opinion, right? <laughs> it's really, really important to remember that it's not necessarily opinion that you have to share. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brooke. Kathy O'Neill is a mathematician, data scientist, and founder of the consulting firm ORCAA, ORCA. Coming up, I'm not shrill. I just sound that way. And if we work together, if we go We've heard the criticism before. That she sounds shrill, that she shouts. Who's become very shrill. You know the word shrill? She's become shrill. We see so much more of that now that we have more women running for president. Rather than talking about the content of their policy proposals, we're focused on the timbre of their voices. This is On the Media. On the Media is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash on the media. That's Indeed.com slash on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. I hate to say it, but often when women show anger, it's not fully appreciated. It's often pushed onto emotional issues, uh, perhaps, or deflected um, onto other people. Former White House Russia expert Fiona Hill may have been angry, but she wasn't shrill. She had the accent and spoke from the diaphragm. Some of us don't, and that can make moments behind the mic a challenge. Not because of our voices, because of the mic and the frequency band. Women who appear in the public eye, or rather in the public ear, often are derided for the way they sound. But how they sound is also a product of how they're heard, and technology has a hand in that. In a recent article for The New Yorker, Clark University professor and musician Tina Tallon noted that, quote, women who speak publicly and challenge authority have long been dismissed as shrill or grating. We've often heard that women's voices are no good for the radio. Talon says that's been the case since the invention of radio. Right. So there was a great article published in the radio broadcast magazine in 1924 in which one of their editors actually interviewed a number of station managers. It was a female editor, by the way, pretty revolutionary for the time. And so she basically went through all of these various complaints that people had, and they ranged from everything regarding audio quality saying that female voices or people with higher voices sounded distorted and nasal and tinny to things about their personality and their senses of humor, saying that they're just not affable, they don't manage to really connect with listeners, or they sound inauthentic and affected. All of these criticisms have been established for nearly a century now and have associated with women in the media. <laughs> All the things that were said about Hillary Clinton when she was running. We've heard the criticism before. That she sounds shrill. That she shouts. She doesn't smile enough. Like a uh, goosebumpy feel every time I hear Hil uh, Hillary's shrill voice r rising and uh, even higher and higher. And Hillary, who's become very shrill. You know the word shrill? 
She's become shrill. We see so much more of that now that we have more women running for president. Rather than talking about the content of their policy proposals, we're focused on the timbre of their voices. And, of course, voices are among the most intimate ways that we encounter people. A person's voice is is like a person's face. The voice is the site of so much when it comes to identity construction, not just for the person speaking, but also for the listener. And there are so many patterns that we learn about who makes certain sets of sounds and how. And so some of it is based upon the way that we observe the world. And some of it is also culturally conditioned in the way that we're looking for who's allowed to speak in what contexts. There was technology used for government purposes and all of that, but radio really began in this country in the mid-20s. That's where we need to peg the beginning of this tale. Exactly. So in 1924, about 5% of households had radio receivers. By 1932, 60% of households had a receiver, and they were now in place in cars as well. And of course, the government needed to step in and start to regulate because you ended up with frequent signal interference, especially in a lot of urban environments. And so finally, in 1927, the Federal Radio Commission went and decided to allot each station its own little 10,000 hertz slice of bandwidth real estate. So there's a segment before you take the signal and modulate it into something that can be transferred in between stations, known as the baseband or the pre-modulated signal. That had to be actually limited to 5,000 hertz because amplitude modulation actually doubles the bandwidth of the signal. So initially they said, okay, we're going to take all of our baseband signals and limit them to 5,000 hertz. What that meant was all of the microphones and all of the equipment that people were using to record didn't need to go above 5,000 hertz because none of that information would get transmitted. Right. So what are we as human beings most attuned to? And then Mm -hmm. what were we able to hear on the radio? Right. So there was some great research that happened in 1933 that basically looked at what are the frequencies that the human hearing apparatus is most sensitive to. And what they found is that we hear frequencies between about 1,000 hertz and 7,000 hertz more loudly than we hear frequencies at 100 hertz. Mm -hmm. So in real life, we hear higher voices louder than lower voices And on the radio, what happens? What happened was there was a common thought at the time that women spoke more softly than men. A lot of this came from the result that the equipment that they were using to measure voices were optimized for lower voices by the people developing the technology who were exclusively men in the early 1910s. And so they actually were missing a lot of the information at higher frequencies. And so when you're not getting the same volume for women's voices, as you note in your article, you get less definition. Uh, The consonants are heard in the higher frequency ranges. And you can't compensate by pumping up the volume for women's voices because we already perceive them as louder. The evolutionary theory goes that higher-pitched voices were voices of warning or something like that. (laughs) 
And so because the microphones were not as good at picking up these high frequencies, it was all all or nothing, right? You either don't pick it up at all or you mm-hmm. pick up the maximum amount and it's distorted and has that harsh edge on it. A lot of engineers thought, well, women are quieter. As soon as a woman would sit behind the microphone, many of them would automatically crank the dial up, which meant that you were going to get those distortions in whatever higher ranges that the microphone could pick up. And this led to a lot of issues with women being called unintelligible um, (laughs) because we just couldn't figure out what the words they were saying were. All we could hear were the vowels. There's an engineer you quote in your piece who tested his technology with women's voices and came to an interesting conclusion. Yes, his name is R.C. Steinberg, Mm -hmm. and he was a researcher at Bell Labs. He was actually one of the more outspoken engineers who would present his research publicly. And so the first mention of this disparity was actually in the 1927 Bell Laboratories record. And he wrote a little brief, and it was entitled, Understanding Women. Not their voices, just women. Exactly, women. He quips that man's traditional inability to understand women may have a basis of fact if one so wishes to interpret certain recent experiments in our laboratories. And he talks about this disparity with consonants and the fact that people with higher voices tend to have consonants that lie between 5,000 and 7,000 hertz. The equipment at the time simply couldn't pick those up. And so there are actually these experiments where they figured out the, quote-unquote, intelligibility percentages uh, at different cutoff levels. And they found that women were significantly harder to understand when everything above 5,000 hertz was cut Mm -hmm. off. But what's fascinating here is rather than advocating for changing the technology, he ends the article by saying, Nature has so designed women's speech that it is almost always most effective when it is of soft and well-modulated tone. (laughs) So here he's just saying, listen, ladies. You're not built for the radio. Exactly. Nature has just designed you this way. That's a bummer. Unfortunately, <laughs> that that stuck. There's no change in a lot of this technology. This government regulation in terms of the band limiting on these signals really, really influenced how manufacturers started making their equipment. And it, it stays that way. And so what that means is that if something isn't quite up to the quality that you're used to seeing, then we just throw away that material, right? This audio doesn't quite sound as good, and so therefore I'm just not going to include this. Unfortunately, we either completely exclude people or we include them in a way that diminishes Mm -hmm. them. And so this lack of, not only lack of representation overall, but lack of accurate or lack of quality representation is a huge problem. We're leaving out the stories of entire demographics, ignoring the contributions of people simply because our technology is limiting their their ability to exist in our mediums. When I began work as an editor at NPR in the late 80s, I talked to a lot of women who were given kind of basic training before they went on the air, and this is NPR. They were told they sounded too young, they needed to lower their voices. Right. The first time I've seen it discussed was 1906. There actually was a telephone switchboard operator's handbook where they talked about training the voice to become low and melodious and soft. And part of the reason, again, for that was because the microphones that were used to pick up sounds and telephone receivers were utter garbage <laughs> right? <laughs> in the early 1900s. They were terrible. And so 
all of this kind of started very, very early on. You noted something across the ocean, the Maggie Thatcher effect. Yes. So when she came to power, a lot of people dismissed Margaret Thatcher as a quote-unquote shrill housewife. And so between the 60s and the 80s, she actually worked with coaches to refine her vocal image. And she actually dropped her voice approximately 60 hertz. That's about half an octave in that range. And she was very transparent about this. Many scholars have written about this. Her biographer has written about this. And so the fact that she was able to become so successful, I think a lot of people started looking at that as an example. Oh, very much so. I've done a good deal of other speaking, but speaking in the House of Commons is quite I think different. we shall have to make up our minds about the cabinet very quickly, because otherwise the press will discuss it all for me. Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, which purported to have a great way to test people's blood. It turned out to be a lot of hooey. The saga (laughs) turns very dark. But there was a lot of commentary about her voice. And this was one of the most bizarre of the deceptions involved in this whole saga. Her voice. What she could figure out. A surprising baritone. Was that it would likely cost her a few thousand dollars to get these tests done. In this interview with NPR from 2005, we hear a very different sounding Elizabeth. No, it hasn't. Well, if I use traditional words to describe what we're doing, it's hard. That was actually raw audio from an interview that she did back in 2005. She had kind of let her guard down, is the theory Mm -hmm. here. And so you suddenly hear something that's a little bit more natural. Of course, she realizes it and dips back into this deep baritone. But if you go and analyze this recording, there's actually a disparity of about 100 hertz, which is a huge amount. That's even more than Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. That's something that surely doesn't just happen naturally. Although her family did say she never changed her voice. Exactly. And certainly there is a wide dynamic range that can occur as we get excited, you know, and we raise our voices to communicate enthusiasm or intensity. But what's very interesting, of course, is we're picking apart her voice and that that has no substance Mm -hmm. when it comes to the actual facts of the court case. Sure, it kind of fits into this narrative of deception. And so I think it is an interesting thing to criticize. And everything about her image was criticized from the black turtlenecks to the way she wore her hair. All of that became a part of this saga. Yeah. Which brings us back to the candidates. The word shrill certainly was often applied to Hillary Clinton last time around. Here we hear Tucker Carlson doing precisely that in 2016. A bunch of men, both running against her and also in the pundit class, who are saying things about her, that she's shrill, that she's shouting. Maybe think, she is shrill. Maybe think, she is shouting. Think, what listen, does that have to do with because her Because when was the last time you had a man be accused of being shrill? That is such a code word. I don't and know. A lot of I women, think a lot of men are shrill. I don't think I've ever heard a man be called well, shrill. First of all, I called Ted Cruz shrill. Can, 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 can I just yes, call BS? Yes. No man on television has called Hillary Clinton shrill. Oh, please. Because that is a felony offense and everybody knows I, I'm it. I'm sure I can <laughs> find another. No, you're not. Nobody uses the word shrill. I haven't actually heard that. I think one of the... One of the most hilarious parts of that clip is the fact that Tucker Carlson is yelling and the female host actually is maintaining a very level tone. And this is something we see time and time again. So many male candidates stand up there and literally yell if a female candidate were to do the same thing. She would be viewed as hysterical, can't keep her temper in check. And so this is another aspect of this. There's a scholar who has coined the term animatedness about this, the idea that if you do nothing, you're viewed as doing something. And if you do something, it's viewed as a hyperbolic expression. So what do you think? We're in a certainly a better spot than we were 
there are a lot more women out there. I mean, have we finally gotten over the technological obstacles of the 1920s or maybe the social cultural ones? Well, I think we've certainly made a lot of progress, both on the technical and the cultural fronts. But one of the things that we deal with a lot now is compression algorithms. Now that we have digital technology and streaming is actually one of the main modes of consumption now for any sort of audio or video. And what that means is that to reduce the amount of data and get it to your computer fast enough or get it to your mobile device fast enough, it has to be compressed. We have to get rid of some of the information. And a lot of these algorithms disproportionately affect higher frequencies. Again, similar to the old microphones and the old transmission modes of the 1920s. Mm. For some reason, we haven't been able to transcend that, all based on a lot of the same not great research from the (laughs) 1920s. So it still haunts us to this day. Now, culturally, I think we're definitely getting to a point where we're more critically examining the ways that we talk about women uh, and people with higher voices and people with different identities in the media. And we're examining how that influences the way that their stories are told, if they're told at all. I've noticed a lot of people on Twitter ironically or sarcastically calling men shrill. Um, (laughs) But it still kind of feels like this very tongue-in-cheek type of application because there's still this underlying knowledge of the long and gendered history of this insult. Mm -hmm. Do you think this figures into this campaign? I'm not sure yet. We keep running up against this word likability or electability. And I think that that has become the new shrill. Mm. where there are gendered notions of who has what it takes to actually be in a position of authority, we're still not quite to the point where we're able to disentangle biases about gender from notions about who can lead and who is fit to lead. Tina, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Tina Tallon is a composer, musician, and professor at Clark University. You keep saying you've got something for me Something you call love but confess You've been a-messin' where you shouldn't have been a-messin' And now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days, these boots are gonna walk all over you. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Michael Lowinger, Leah Fetter, John Hanrahan, and Asla Chattervedi. We had more help from Charlotte Gartenberg, and our show is edited by me. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Sam Baer. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. These boots are made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are going to walk all over you. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.